очень переживаю за военных, которые погибают, но они достойны защищать нашу родину. По нам начали стрелять украинские, мне ногу ранили. Вот так вот даже. Да чуть-чуть остался шлам. Фашисты первыми наступали на нашу землю. А мы защищали ее, терпели, погибали. Но они все равно идут до, прям до, до победы. Welcome to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. Because of NATO's insistence to expand eastward, we have the conflict in Ukraine. And Ukraine is quickly becoming a failed state and a humanitarian crisis. Nonetheless, NATO is undeterred. This alliance continues to be the biggest threat to pan-European security. It is also indifferent to the damage it does to the international system. Crosstalking NATO doubling down, I'm joined by my guests, Daniel McAdams and Lake Jackson. He's the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. In Washington state, we have Andrei Matryanov. He is a writer as well as a military and political analyst. And in Lund, we cross to Jan Olberg. He is the director of the Swedish Independent Transnational Foundation for Peace and Future Research. All right, gentlemen, crosstalk rules in effect. That means you can jump anytime you want, and I always appreciate it. Daniel, let me go to you first and Lake Jackson here. Um, NATO has doubled down. You know, it's it's it, they met in Buc uh, Bucharest. You know, they, they're doing it all over again. The door is open. Uh, so, how has Ukraine done over the, the years with the open door to NATO? Has it really benefited NATO at all? Has it benefited NATO? Who has it benefited? Go ahead, Daniel. Well, who it's benefited is, of course, the Beltway Bandits, the U.S. weapons manufacturers, Raytheon, whose representative is now our Secretary of Defense. Right, uh, who made Raytheon missiles. Uh, they're the big beneficiaries of this whole uh, project. Uh, it's now been 14 years since the 2008 declaration that Georgia and Ukraine would be welcomed into NATO someday. And we saw from the foreign minister's statement at this NATO meeting that despite the rhetoric of Jen Stoltenberg, which is always very heated, and very turgid, uh, the actual invitation, if you read the declaration, is just as kind of weak, uh, just as kind of in the future as it always has been. Yeah, so, Andre, the, 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 the status quo over the last 14 years is just fine for Stoltenberg and NATO, okay? Uh, as a matter of fact, it is, it is actually highlighted. I mean, all of us growing up, NATO was this kind of uh, backwater alliance. The Soviet Union never had any intention of invading. And all of a sudden, Stoltenberg feels like, you know, he's like somebody like Zelensky, somebody important in the world, okay? But actually, this whole, uh, the, the whole, all these events being played out in Ukraine has shown that NATO is the biggest threat to Pan European security. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's obviously true. When you have pan-European security against Russia and without Russia, this is what you get. Andre. Yeah, this Thursday in the morning, Mr. Uh, morning American time, Mr. Lavrov said exactly the same, you know, 
there will be no security in Europe without Russia and Belarus, and uh, that's pretty self-evident. And in the end, we have to always keep in mind, keep the eye on the big picture, that uh, without United States, NATO, NATO is nothing. You know, and uh, basically, Europe is reduced to the status of the lap dogs. And U.S. says, jump, you know, uh, Europe asks how high. And uh, nothing will change until the United States completely defeated in every sense across the board, economic, political, ideological, cultural, and militarily, they are sustaining actually catastrophic losses and reputational losses, especially. Yeah, and I mean, how, you know, you, the, the rhetoric, I mean, obviously NATO wants to exist, okay? It's a big grift, it's a big bureaucracy, there's a lot of nice uh, uh, salaries Ow. there, positions, yeah. you have all this elite capture. But Jan, I mean, what does it have to show for itself, except for this time around, it's not Afghanistan, it's not Iraq, it's not Syria, it's not Libya, it's Ukraine, and Europeans are paying a pretty high price for something that has nothing to do with their security whatsoever. So NATO, I'm agreeing with Andre. I'm hoping for a categorical, categorical defeat for NATO in Ukraine. And it's, it's in the cards. Go ahead, Jan. Well, yes, thank you very much for having me here. I would just say that this summer I wrote 150, 160 pages book online on transnational.live with 30 arguments of why I think NATO should be abolished. It has said, was set up in 1949. The purpose was to create peace. Its own treaty is a copy of the United Nations Charter, added um, Article 5 of mutual aid, but it has said that it should, peace should be created by peaceful means according to Article 1 of the UN, etc. NATO has done nothing of that. It has violated with the bombing of Yugoslavia at the time, uh, 99, for instance, and violated its own treaty. And it has not, in spite of, I don't know how many trillions of dollars taxpayers in the NATO countries have contributed, uh, it has obviously now, because of the um, expansion, and I agree with, with those who say that this crisis is caused by the underlying conflict, which is NATO's expansion of the last 30 years, against all promises given to Gorbachev, um, while the war is something Russia is res responsible for. But what I'm saying is an organization that has existed for 73 years and not managed to do anything constructive about its, its, uh, its primary goal should be evaluated, should be discussed, should be reformed completely or abolished and something new created. Yeah, but Daniel, that's never going to come into play. I, I agree with much of what Jan had to say here. If it's not worth it, it's not working, why continue it here? And again, I'd like to point out to our viewers, ever since this declaration was made in 2008, haven't you noticed, Daniel, that Ukraine gets smaller and smaller and smaller? The more NATO helps and in, in, in injects itself as a co-belligerent in this conflict. Daniel? It gets smaller and it also gets colder. Right. Um, it's a disaster. I mean, <clears throat> imagine having friends like these, you know, they take you to a party and they they steal your wallet and they buy drinks with it and they leave you rolled up in a corner somewhere. Right. Um, but you captured it, Peter, very well at the beginning. This is a massive grift. We send Ukraine billions of dollars in weapons. Russia blows them up and we say, oh, gosh, 
These weapons are blown up. We need to send more. I mean, literally, the military-industrial complex is on Russia's side in this fight as well. We're going to spend, I think, what, $100 million rebuilding their energy sector, and Russia's going to blow it up, and we're going to send another $100 billion. I mean, this is incredible. You wonder how long. I mean, in the mainstream media, there is only one voice that I've seen, and that's Tucker Carlson, yep. who calls this out as the grift that it is. Uh, and he had a, uh, a, a young conservative... A uh, woman on who called uh, Zelensky the welfare queen of the world, Candace Owens. Yep. And she's absolutely correct. That's the only person who's really calling it out. This is the grift of all grifts. This makes the COVID grift look like an honest, uh, an, an, an honest endeavor. Uh, it's just unbelievable. And I just, it's hard to believe that the American public, and if you look at a recent poll, it shows that Ukraine is way, way, way down on the scale of priorities. But nevertheless, it's way, way, way up when it comes to spending tons and tons of money. So at some point, the American public, we would presume, will connect the two dots and realize, oh, my gosh, why am I so poor? Well, all your money went to Ukraine, you idiots. Well, and, and Andre, I'd like to finish uh, Daniel's. It went to Ukraine to whom? Okay, because we know the, the, the equipment doesn't all get to the front. The, the, the money transfers, I mean, God knows where that money goes, okay? I mean, there are rumors, I'm not going to confirm them here, but plenty of uh, allegations of real estate deals in Switzerland and all these other places uh, far, far from the battlefield here. I mean, it, it, it's, it's really quite interesting. Have you noticed that over the last few months, a 10-year plan to rebuild Ukraine now, to rebuild the, 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 the NATO countries have at least their leaders have no intention of ending this thing anytime soon. They have grandiose plans. Go ahead, Andre. Well, uh, they may have whatever plans they want, but obviously we cannot forget the pure military industrial uh, part of this whole spectacle. And as one of the uh, users or posters on my blog yesterday beautifully commented uh, on the issue of the shortages of the, for example, artillery shells for the United States, forget Ukraine, United States. And he says, well, yeah, we have the projectile dysfunction. And obviously, even the uh, people who are in charge, they say that uh, you uh, – it takes about four to five years to United States to even begin produce uh, shells in the quantities necessary. And what we see, we see a, a tremendous failure on NATO's part to be adequate to the uh, requirements of the modern war with the peer, which tells you from the get-go, especially when you see the uh, decline and deterioration, if not to say the degeneration of the military capabilities of NATO. In the last 20 years, it becomes obvious that it's all about stealing. And yes, you're right, so many sinecures there, my gosh. So many positions which pay well, you know, why even bother? So uh, militarily NATO is only created to fight the third world small nations like Libya. And there you go. Well, Jan, I mean, uh, you, you have someone like... Uh, um, um the Stoltenberg and others, Burrell, saying that if Russia prevails in Ukraine, it's a defeat for 
the West in, in defeat for NATO. Well, that's I, I agree with that, and I look forward to that because it will, this will come to an end, and then we'll have cooler heads sitting down and say, let's have a security arrangement for the entire continent, which probably wouldn't need to be the, all that much militarized if you think about it. Th- last 30 seconds before we go to the break, Jan. I completely agree. We live in a militarist time. Everybody is intoxicated with weapons and weapons and weapons as an answer to all kinds of problems. We should have done long ago uh, what was needed at the time, and Gorbachev suggested it, a new security structure built on common security, defensive defense, combinations of military and civilian defense, civilian conflict resolution, a European United Nations, or something like that. We did not do that. We triumphalistically expanded NATO. And the only raison d'etre of NATO today, which is an outdated organization, is expansion. Yeah, that's it. Not with new members, but it's, also it, with it, new, it, uh, new it's a, partners. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an alliance that exists to exist. Gentlemen, I have to jump in here. We have to go to a hard break. And after that hard break, we'll continue our discussion on NATO doubling down. Stay with RT. talking to you all that technology should work for people a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law show your identification we should be very careful about artificial intelligence uh, the point obviously is to create uh, trust uh, rather than fear i would like to take on various jobs i mean with artificial intelligence we are summoning the demons A robot must protect its own existence as own existence. Is your media a reflection of reality? In a world transformed, what will make you feel safer? Isolation or community? Are you going the right way or are you being led somewhere? Which direction? What is truth? What is fake? In a world corrupted, you need to descend. So join us in the depths or remain in the shallows. Welcome back to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter LaBelle. To remind you, we're discussing NATO doubling down. Okay, let's go back to Danny and Lake Jackson. I mean, uh, Stoltenberg, is, uh, he, he's... He's very pithy, I would say, when he speaks. And I don't know if you've noticed, is this kind of NATO ease that he's always talking about? It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. A lot of it is circular reasoning. Um, but this is what he had to say in Bucharest on his anniversary visit from 2008. He was there, he, he reminds us. President Putin cannot deny sovereign nations to make their own sovereign decisions. But I guess that doesn't apply to Russia. Thoughts, Daniel? 
sovereign peoples. You know, uh, Jan made a great point about NATO's existence is only to expand. It's kind of like the Sam Bankman freed of military alliances, isn't it? <laughs> I, was ju- I, I was wondering who was going to come up with that connection in this program. You were the first one. Go, keep going. You have to keep pulling in new suckers to keep, uh, you know, surviving. And, you know, I mean, NATO is the home of failed Scandinavian politicians, and that's the case. And when you let these people of the Baltics and the Scandinavians make your defense policy, you've got a big problem because you have a problem of moral hazard. Uh, the people in the polls as well, the people who have it in for Russia are sucking everyone else into fighting their fight for them. Uh, and it's a huge, huge problem. NATO should never expand it. A good friend of mine at the State Department at the time uh, was chief uh, in, in charge of promoting NATO expansion in the 90s. He sent me a note saying how much he regrets the role that he played in arguing for the expansion of NATO to Poland and Hungary in the first round. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way. But nevertheless, the U.S. is going to train 2,500 Ukrainian soldiers, we've heard now. It's going to be a massive increase. That's about like three days on the battlefield, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let, me, let me let Andre react to that here, because, you know, when they talk about 100,000 rounds are going to be sent in, 1,500 troops. In the, Andre, in the scheme of, uh, of things on a battlefield, what kind of numbers does this really mean? Because it looks more like PR to me. I'm not a military person. If someone says 100,000 rounds, maybe I'll be impressed. You're a military person. Does that, you know, does that get you through your breakfast? Go ahead, Andre. Yeah, they are scraping the bottle of the barrel right now, and I entirely agree. Most of it is PR. Most of it for the public effect, you know, for the uh, solving of the internal political problems. Uh, But uh, the scale of the, so to speak, aid in reality is not increasing. It's actually decreasing because there's very little left to supply Ukraine with. And, of course... uh, even if to quote Colonel McGregor, I do not have uh, independent numbers, so I have to refer to him. Uh, Russia has now about 540,000 new troops uh, along the uh, borders of the former Ukraine, and we can only guess what happens once the ground freezes. So 100,000 rounds and 1,500 troops, <clears throat> I mean, they don't make any difference whatsoever. Uh, now, uh, since... Uh, uh, von der Leyen, uh, um, she was on Tuesday. She suddenly spoke the truth. At least she gave the proper uh, order of the uh, uh, Ukrainian casualties, both KIAs and wounded. We can uh, deduct or calculate from there. So we're looking at about uh, 500,000 uh, armed forces of Ukraine uh, casualties with more than 100,000 killed and another three to 400,000 um, wounded. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it for real armed forces of Ukraine. And we have this feedback constantly with the Ukrainian um, soldiers complaining that they've been thrown into their front line without any preparation anymore. So, yeah, good luck with them training 2,500 or uh, whatever, 1,500 uh, personnel. I don't know what they can train to, you know, them for. So it just, you know, again, graft and money-making as much as they can. 
Yeah, I mean, Jan, this is one of the things that's really kind of perplexing if you look at it from a common sense point of view. Um, we do know that in, in March there were uh, maneuvers for some kind of uh, termination of the conflict in, in uh, Istanbul. I take those reports very credibly. And um, But you have an elite that wants to continue the war. And I'm sorry, maybe I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's about the grift. It keeps the money coming in. Everything is a fundraiser. Let's fundraise. Let's take another uh, farm. You know, let's take another village. Fundraise, fundraise. Because they know the jig is going to be up eventually, and they just want to acquire as much wealth as they possibly can. Maybe, you know, selling stuff off on the black market, which there are credible reports of that as well. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm trying to understand the mindset of this elite here, because, you know, using your own people as fodder on such a massive scale shows that at least there's a disconnect here. We know that it's a one-party state right now. There's no freedom of speech. And the West is, sees this image of Ukraine that doesn't even exist. So it seems like it's a real money-making event here before, you know, they, 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 they have to cross the Rubicon and say, well, there's not much Ukraine left. Go ahead, Jan. Well, I don't really know how much economy is driving this. What we are facing is all over the world and in most countries of the world is one, nuclearism, but that is part of something else called the MIMAC, the Military Industrial Media Academic Complex. It's much more than Eisenhower talked about, the Military Industrial Complex. And the elites you talk about are characterized, whether in Russia, whether in NATO, whether in Ukraine, whether in, you know, any country with big military, they are all conflict resolution and peace illiterate. There well, is no well, one yeah, who I, has I, the yeah, I, yeah, I do. Wait, I, wait, I, wait. I do have to push back a little bit there. I don't think there's any indication Russia wanted to have a military conflict in Ukraine. If you look from 2014, particularly with the coup in, in Kiev, Russia warned that the very existence of Ukraine was at hand here. We have in December of last year, almost exactly a year ago, Warnings that if you do not change direction, we're going to all be in trouble. So I do have to push back on that, okay? The military-industrial complex, as it existed, Russia is nothing like it is in the United States, okay? Because Russia doesn't look for foreign wars. The U.S. does. Daniel, react to that. What's very interesting I'm is when Putin... I was not saying that, Peter. I was okay. not right. saying I, I, that, I just... Peter, but go... What I'm saying is there isn't parody on that one issue. That's all I'm saying, okay? Daniel, go ahead. That's not what I said either. I, 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 okay, I, I'm correcting myself, okay? I did. I'm correcting myself. Go ahead, Daniel. I think you should. <laughs> I just did for the second time. Go ahead, Daniel. Okay. I'm just going to say what's interesting is that when Putin went with these mothers of soldiers recently, uh, he, he issued kind of a very rare self-correction, which you don't often hear from him. He's a very confident leader, and he doesn't often in public say that he was wrong. But he admitted in so many words that he was wrong in 2014 yeah. uh, when he decided to pull back and to not accept uh, the Donbass into Russia, to not accept the pleas of the Russians in the area to be freed of the torture that they had suffered uh, from Kiev all this time. And I think that was very telling. He understands, he understood, and he said it out loud, that his reticence to enter into this military conflict at the time caused a lot of pain and suffering of the people in Donbass. And I think he must feel very acutely 
the the pressure, uh, the the, uh, the 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 sense that uh, that he's let people down, and I think that probably drives a lot of what he's doing right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, Andre, one of the things that Western audiences don't understand because they're so propagandized, but, you know, the eastern part of the Donbass, um, uh, Crimea, these are domestic political issues in Russia. They're not foreign issues, okay? And, and, and there's that, there is a very strong connection right there. And I agree with Daniel. <laughs> I mean, there's an interesting, Andre, there's an interesting juxtaposition here. NATO can never admit that it's wrong. Vladimir Putin admitted that he was wrong on something eight years ago. Go ahead, Andre. Uh, well, we need to give the cognizance to the fact that uh, there are two Putins, actually. Uh, one Putin is a human, and another is statesman. He was speaking from the human heart, which he often does, including, for example, if you remember his visit to Dagestan uh, during, uh, at the anniversary, so to speak, of the invasion of the international terrorists. In 1999. So, and he's drinking this, you know, shot of vodka. That's human speaking. In terms of the uh, real situation, in 2014, Russia wasn't ready yet to face what would have come inevitably and which have come. It, she wasn't ready. And in this case, yeah, it's both admission that he could have done better, but it was a human admission. As yeah. the statesman, uh, I agree that at uh, that point of time, and many stated this, Russia hasn't been ready in 2013. Yeah. It's a completely different case now. And, yeah, it's, it's a human emotion on his part, and he is known to be a very emotionally honest man, especially speaking to the mothers who lost their yeah. sons. Jan, I mean, if NATO doesn't change course, then what we're going to see is more conflict in this in this part of the world in the on the european continent here because it's very clear to me that the only way this conflict ends is that russia gets what it wants it's about it's black and white to me go ahead jan one minute to you jan go ahead well that's a mixture that's a mixture of the two things the war and the violence and the weapons are symptoms of underlying conflicts it's like a per, per patient who goes to a doctor and say i have pain here and there and the doctor only di discusses the pain and doesn't do a diagnosis to find out where does the pain come from. And unless we all, Russia, Ukraine, NATO, the UN, etc., begin to stop talking about weapons and warfare and be obsessed with that, then and go to the discussion of underlying conflicts. You can never solve a conflict if you look at symptoms and weapons and the violence only. Then that becomes the raison d'etre of continuing this for years. But if you want peace, and that's my profession, you have to look and do a diagnosis of the underlying conflicts and then discuss who can be a mediator, who could sit with, who, with which tables, which issues to discuss, how to itch you a little bit every day towards something that all parties can live with. There is no future for Europe, neither North, East or West, if we continue focusing just on the war and the dynamics of war, the dynamics of weapons and the militarist thinking that is imbued in everybody's mind at okay, the moment. Okay, we've run out of time, but I can't, think, I, I can't think of a better way to end the program than on Jan's words. Very, very wise words. That's, uh, that's all the time we have. Many thanks to my guests in Lake Jackson, Luna, and in Washington State. And thanks to our viewers for watching us here at RT. See you next time. Remember, Crosstalk Rules.
I'm originally from Philadelphia. Got in the movement in '88. Uh, I was 13, going on 14. We were violent towards those people because we believed that we were the superior race. We were here first, and this is our country. Being part of that movement, I got to feel a sense of power when I felt powerless. I got attention when I felt invisible, and accepted when I felt unlovable. So, life after hate is an organization that was founded by four uh, ex-skinhead, neo-Nazi, white supremacists in the U.S. and Canada. And they found each other, and they knew that they wanted to help other guys get out. There's two parts to getting out of a violent extremist group. The first part is disengagement, which is where you leave the social group. And then the next part is de-radicalization, where the belief systems and the ideology are removed. It was very impactful when someone finally came along with 